Hello and welcome to Two Peds in a Pod, the medical education podcast from the Children's Emergency Department in Derby. I'm your host again, as always, Ian Lewins, one of the consultants there. Um, and I know each week I say this is a very special podcast, but this really is a very special podcast because today we're coming live from the Human Factors in Paediatrics 2019 conference in Lancaster. Um, and I have a panel who I'll get to introduce themselves in a moment. And we have a live studio audience. Hello, live studio audience. <laughs> See, I told you. Um, so, I'm Ian Lewins, and I, I shall get the panel to introduce themselves. Hello, I'm Shariq Masalm. I'm a paediatric emergency uh, medicine consultant at Alderhey Children's Hospital in Liverpool. I'm Dr Hilary Jones. I'm a GP and medical broadcaster. I'm Dr Omal Ghori. I'm an ED consultant mainly at Oldham um, in the north, and I have a subspeciality interest in paediatric emergency medicine. Uh, I'm Ian Sinner. I'm a consultant respiratory paediatrician at Alder Hay in Liverpool. Brilliant. So everybody's remembered their names, which is always a really good start. And yes, it really is that, Dr Hilary Jones. So we've been taking questions throughout the day uh, on the Twitter feed and uh, from, from people I've had discussions with. Um, and this is a human factors uh, conference. So there's a lot of discussion about conversations that we have with, with patients and parents. Uh, and I guess the first question that I, I really liked was, when is it a good time to have difficult conversations around social factors? And I think what people mean by that is things like smoking and immunizations. So when I said smoking, Ian's eyes lit up. So Ian, when's a good time to have that conversation as a respiratory paediatrician? So I, I think it's a really, really good question and a really important question. And, and my views on respiratory paediatrics in the UK is that at least 80% of the stuff we see is at least somewhat modifiable or avoidable or preventable. And yet when we look back at how good we are at asking about these questions at all, the social questions, we're really poor and things aren't getting that much better as audits are consistently showing. So we hardly ever ask about housing quality in around half the children that we see that present acutely or to clinic. We ask about uh, secondhand smoke exposure. Now more than ever, we need to be asking young people about vaping. There are young people dying in the States, uh, and there are cases in the UK of fulminant respiratory failure uh, from vaping-related illness. So we absolutely need to be asking about these things. In terms of when is the right time, I think at some point <laughs> in the consultation is the right time. Um, there's a lot of talk about make every contact count, and we need to make sure that these don't just become words that, that people say because they sound good. We need to make every contact count. We need to be addressing these issues. And research suggests that parents don't become offended by this. In fact, I think they'd probably be a bit off-put if they knew that we knew something modifiable that would reduce the chance of their child getting unwell and we weren't asking about it. I think that would wind them up more. Because some people would sort of say, hang on, this is a time when people are vulnerable. They've brought their child in with the, the asthma attack. They're obviously smelling of cigarettes. Why are you picking on these people at a vulnerable time? And again, I think that's a really, really good question, uh, particularly at a conference like this about human factors. We need to be sensitive to people and we need to not be picking on them. Um, we need to not let them go home because that's an opportunity missed. We need to not let them go home without addressing these things. But I think we need to pick our timing such that we're not at people at their most vulnerable. And that goes for 
all aspects of, of, of lifestyle and healthy living and parenting, whether it be breastfeeding or smoking or nutrition or children being overweight, the time to not do it is when they're feeling like you're getting at them. That's the least likely time that you'll see a change in behavior anyway. Um, and it's not particularly nice to, to make people feel put upon in that way. So it's, it's a really good question. So we obviously think about smoking as a, as a social factor, but of course the, the other things in, in my mind are things like immunization and increasingly obesity. Now, do I ask people about obesity in the ED when they come in with another problem with, with a clearly overweight child? I don't, but should I? Uh, I think as Ian said, um, each opportunity, each healthcare contact um, is an opportunity to exchange information. And it might be that at that particular moment, that parent is and that child is receptive to the message of, um, of health promotion. And, um, and if you don't address it at that point, you might have missed just a small opportunity to shape the way they uh, reframe their thinking, shape the way they re-get their information, or just even just point them in the right direction. In the emergency department, I think there's, it's a really interesting interface between public health medicine and uh, an, an acute and acute medicine, and um, and uh, you know, should we in the emergency department be taking on that public health role? Um, I, I think that's a really interesting question, and I think I, I'm personally in two minds about it. Should we completely take over the public health role because we see it, we see the effects of public health policy, um, or should we say actually we're doing enough? what we're doing at the moment and with increasing emergency department attendances and the state of the NHS and public health policy and, and health policy at the moment that actually we're just going to be focusing on resuscitation and but that doesn't really answer the question that doesn't prevent people from uh, coming back with their ill health it doesn't prevent people from improving their own health so I think in the emergency department as clinicians I think we do have a responsibility to impart positive health messages including uh, for obesity and immunizations and smoking. Ian's absolutely right. You have, to, you have to time it correctly. You know, you're not going to be talking about obesity when you're resuscitating them for meningococcal disease. You know, you're not going to be handing out, you know, smoking cessation leaflets, you know, across the patients, you know, to... You're not going to be doing that. But you're going to gauge a feel during the consultation and say, you know what, I, th I think this consultation is going well, I think this is the right time to be able to approach this and impart that uh, information in a shared um, decision-making way. But uh, coming on to that as well, I think I agree with what you've said, but I think as clinicians, we need to not be afraid of having these awkward conversations with patients and carers of the children that we see, because I always try and uh, have that conversation pretty much with every patient that I see because I think it's an opportunity where they've come in to seek help and to seek advice they've done that consciously and it's an opportunity missed if we don't try and just start to instill that information and that knowledge that we have like you've said Ian into the parents because they might not make a change for their social um, care behaviour with that one interaction but if the GP they go to says the same thing as the A&E clinician that they saw as then their respiratory consultant in clinic 
then slowly but surely, I believe that these messages will start going through. So our role is vital in public health service to provide this information to parents. And some parents might not even know that their smoking is causing their child's bronchiolitis and it will get better if they stop smoking. So it's very important, I think. We have a real role there. But, but of course, we're always pushed for time. And, you know, for, for people in hospital, we've potentially got a bit more time. But for somebody in primary care who's really pushed for time, you've got five minutes, ten minutes per consultation, do you have time to fit in that public health message? I think it's important that we find the time. Um, listening to what you guys are saying, I think it's really, it is an important opportunity to grasp when you've got them there. Remember that if you've had a successful outcome from your treatment in, in the emergency department, then they kind of owe you a favor. They're listening to you. You've got a captive audience there who are saying, whether they say it vocally or not, they kind of want to, they want to thank you. So it's a great opportunity to say, oh look, by the way, um, I really need to tell you this, and, and there's a way of doing it. Not everyone's the same. The approach has to be different and tailored to that individual. But I think you have an opportunity. It doesn't take long to say that obesity or, or this smoking does contribute, as you said, to your child's illness. I think it's a really opportune time to say it briefly and nicely and politely with their interests at heart when they're captive because they're saying, thanks, you've looked after my, my child. So that, that's one thing. And in general practice, yeah, we're pushed for time. But if we don't address these issues, we're condoning what mm. people are increasingly beginning to see as normal, being overweight or obese. And of course, it's not, it might be the normal what you see, but actually it's not a healthy normal. And, and, and we have to be much more direct in changing conceptions about the dangers of, of being overweight and obese. And I, I, I think alongside that, as well as us as clinicians doing it, I think the institutions in which we work have a responsibility to do this as well. We need to we need to show that we're living by these values. So whenever I leave my Monday afternoon asthma clinic and walk through the waiting room, I'm greeted by empty, empty Monster Munch packets and Lion Bar wrappers and empty cans of Coke and fruit shoot and all this. And actually, why aren't we giving fruit to children? Why aren't we just dishing out fruit in the clinic? Why aren't we making it important to ask about exercise and nutrition and smoking and mental well-being? As soon as we start asking about these things, they become important. And then when they become important, the whole institution changes. And, as, and like I said to, 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 our, um, to our team recently, in some ways it's hypocritical of me to say to parents in my uh, respiratory clinic, you need to stop smoking at home but it's all right, you can smoke outside the main entrance to our hospital. You, you know, we need to start living by the values that we expect our parents to live by. And of course, staff have got to do that as well. Absolutely. Every morning and I come to work, I walk through a haze of smoke, uh, of staff smoking outside the hospital, but just off the grounds. So we, we, we all need to do that. Um, I think it's really important to um, put the message to the parents in a personal way and a way that they can understand because there are, you know, for example, the um, cigarette packets, you know, they have those bold, you know, smoking kills, but yet people are still smoking. You know, it doesn't, they don't think it relates to them and they don't think it relates to their health or their children's health. So trying to frame the um, conversation that you have with them, and I think this is what you touched on um, earlier, um, is that... Uh, you make it personal to them. And I remember one consultation where I said to a parent, I said, if 
you stop smoking, you will save enough money to take your family to Disneyland. And it was like a light switch kind of when you went, oh, oh, yeah. And in, and in that way, kind of reframing it to their circumstance and to their situation, you know, and, and by the way, their kids, his kids were in the room. So, you know, kind of saying, <laughs> saying that to them, the opportunity that they could have a really nice family holiday if he put this money away was, was really interesting to, to see that. And instead of saying, you know, it's not good for your health, it's not good, mm. they, they've heard those messages before and for some reason they're not listening to them. And, the, the, the time that we'd probably get our biggest bang for our buck for having those conversations is when women are pregnant. And we, so we, we, I think we miss those opportunities as well. Certainly, if you look at maps of health inequality, they, they, they completely overlap with maps of the country where there are low levels of breastfeeding, high levels of antenatal smoking, high levels of social housing that's inadequate. And all of this needs to come back to policy about how we respect and treat pregnant women in the UK. Okay, so we'll move on to a question from Twitter. And this is a nice straightforward one that will take us two minutes to answer. It comes from Craig McDougall and it says, uh, our ambulance trust wants us to engage with uh, patients in health awareness as a target to reduce admissions. How do we do that effectively? <laughs> I think I was asked this for my consultant interview. It's one of these awful questions you go, how do you reduce admissions? Oh. How do we reduce admissions? Anybody <laughs> want to take this one? I don't want necessarily less patients to come to A&E. What I want is to stop corridor medicine becoming an accepted standard. And what we need is more beds, more doctors and more nurses. I think as a, as a GP, I, I would say that um, we could do a great deal more if there were more of us in uh, in, in re-becoming the gatekeepers um, that stopped so many admissions coming to hospitals. Um, but um, it's gratifying, isn't it, to hear uh, that Jeremy Hunt promised us 5,000 more doctors by next year, some kind of which, you know, wizardry going on there. Uh, if only it were possible, we won't be able to produce that many more GPs, but if we had more, we would be able to be the gatekeepers and prevent so many admissions. But where are these resources coming from? And, and that's, got to be a, that's got to be a political process where governments take this far more seriously. Uh, I, I, think, um, I think there are two layers to this. There is the political layer and there's the what do we do on the shop floor. Uh, and again, uh, and I'll probably never stop saying this until we see some change, the best way to get this sorted, both for paediatrics and adult medicine, is to focus on the early years. We know that the patients who are being admitted with COPD this winter and, and, and blocking up your corridors and your beds are people whose mums lived in poor conditions 50, 60 years ago. We know that um, your nutrition when you're a pregnant woman determines whether your child will have a heart attack in their 50s or 60s. It, you know, the early life experience is so important and I think that's where I would focus the political aspect of this, if we look at the amount of money that we make from tax on cigarettes and compare it to the amount of money we spend on, uh, on, on smoking awareness and vaping awareness, it's, it's a ridiculous discrepancy that we need to stop. Um, and in terms of the question about, um, uh, about how ambulance services and, uh, and also uh, you know, EDs themselves ca can address this, again, I think it comes down to leading by example. I think it comes down to being able to have 
um, important conversations which um, w w which can be quite long-lasting. The paramedic profession is really well respected across the country, uh, and, and rightly so, and people will listen to paramedics because people see paramedics as being frontline heroes. And, and I think there's a real voice in that profession that, that I, for one, would be really supporting and advocating in this. I've just put that slightly back to you, that paramedics are, are respected by uh, the public. Are they always respected by doctors, though? Because I know some people have sort of said, well, you, you, what, you go, why have you brought this patient here? I'm getting lots of nodding from the audience of paramedics who are going, you bloody doctors, you're always telling us off. Mm. And when I sort of came up with it, they sort of thought we'll do this podcast, and I said to some of our paramedics from the East Midlands, I said, what would you like to know about paediatrics? And they said, everything because we get so little teaching and training mm. in paediatric medicine, it's not funny. Um, so we have to, as paediatricians, I think, be far more respectful and humble towards you guys who, who do an astonishing job. Absolutely. Here, here. I, I think um, when a patient is brought into the emergency department uh, by paramedics, um, I often have to uh, use my imagination to try and understand uh, the conditions of that child, uh, the family, the house, the street, the whatever, um, that um, they have called you under and you have responded to. And I'm really quite cosy in my very well-equipped emergency department with PICU on my doorstep and the mm. CT scanner around the corner. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really quite cosy in that. And I don't think there's um, any place for me to be able to say to you guys, why have you brought this patient here? Because I'm, I wouldn't be able to assess uh, and treat a child on, on the doorstep of a house with a, a, you know, a critical illness uh, without the things that I have. Absolutely, Shrug. I'd just like to add to that. I, I'm, I'm in awe of you guys. I mean, y the scariest part of emergency medicine is being the first on the scene. And, uh, and recently, I've had the privilege to fly with the London Air Ambulance a couple of times um, uh, and uh, spend a weekend uh, on duty with the East Midlands Ambulance. And, and, you know, in both situations, one where we landed on the M25 for a car accident where they were carrying out ITU basically on the, on the, uh, on the road, um, doing open heart surgery on the road. Uh, the paramedics were uh, hugely, um, um, uh, significantly able to assist uh, the surgeons and doing fantastic work. Similarly, in a head-on collision um, in uh, on the East, in, uh, East Midlands ambulance, you guys are on the scene first. And I'm actually in awe of what you do. You, you, you do the most challenging part of emergency medicine. And uh, I have the utmost respect for you, and, and I know the public do. Um, obviously not 100%, because some of them just don't, really appreciate what you do they they haven't got the the intelligence and the knowledge to know what you do but but i think on the whole doctors do i hope they do um because you deserve that and i think there has to be mutual respect for all um health professionals and i think we we should always remember that we work together as part of a bigger wider team and uh, we wouldn't be able to do each other's jobs like you said before shrook so a little bit of mutual respect goes a long way Agreed. Um, 
a further question that we've had, uh, which again revolves around uh, discussion and conversation and how we communicate with each other, was around uh, scoring systems, something that one of the, the previous talkers, Damien Rowland, is, is very keen and interested on. And a question came to say, well, why is there no national early warning system for children? Why is there one for adults, but not for children? Um, why don't we sort of all speak the same language in, say, primary care, pre-hospital, and hospital? What are the problems with that, and what are the barriers to that? Um, I think Stamien was showing in his talk that um, children are a mixed bunch, and uh, one school might not necessarily work for that entire group of children. So, uh, whereas adults tend to be uh, more homogenous, I guess, in their physiology, um, children necessarily aren't. So having one score for uh, a, a, a one-day-old baby going all the way uh, to the top to a 15-year-old you know, child is going to be difficult, it's going to be challenging, and um, as with ev everything, it, the, um, the evidence has to, has to be there to prove safety of using this type of score. Um, and then I think I would also add some caution in saying that um, if we're so reliant on a number, um, I think as Damon said in his talk, then we take away that critical element of thinking and I'd be cautious in rolling this out without enough evidence and the caveats of you really do need to do some thinking as well if you're applying this score. But I guess some people would say, well, okay, we've got GCS for conscious level and everybody kind of knows what that means and we know that as it changes, why don't we have something for children that we can use that the GP could use and say oh, this child's got a pops of seven and I'm concerned paramedics pick them up and they've got pops of eight and by the time they get to us they've now got pops of five what are there any problems or worries with that at all I, I worry about scores in general um, I think scores never encapsulate and I mean literally never encapsulate the diversity of health and, and ill health that we see. Um, but I do think they've got their place. They're a little bit like flow charts and all these things. They've got their place. I guess the worry would be that there's always a short-termism when it comes to change in medicine. And just rolling out a score, and I know Damien isn't here, but I'm sure other people have heard Damien say this, it's not really the score that makes a difference. It what com it's, it's what comes with the score. It's the education of people around sick children. It's the better communication and linkage between people. Um, I mean, we've, I think an example of where I think scores becomes, uh, scores can become a little bit of a, a hindrance is when people feel obliged to phone because of a score without never, without necessarily thinking through what it is that they are worried about. And we lose the ability potentially to, to bring in all these important things like nursing experience, paramedic intuition, parental intuition, we sometimes run the risk of not incorporating them into a numerical figure that as a one-off probably doesn't mean anything as a trend might be quite useful. And a scoring system is only as good as the person that's using the scoring system. And I've noticed throughout my career that they are used incorrectly um, for justification as well. So you, you have to be very careful that if you are using a scoring system um, to guide a management plan, then you understand the parameters in which that was validated. 
So, for example, you've mentioned GCS. Well, that's actually only validated for head injuries. But how many times have you heard of GCS for a patient that's had a seizure or a patient that's drunk or a patient that hasn't had any sort of injury? Similarly, in adults, we use a CURB score. So uh, patients with pneumonia, for example, um, there's a CURB 65 score, which is actually validated for inpatient mortality once the patient has already been in hospital. But it's used as an admission tool incorrectly. So we have to be very, very careful with scoring systems. There isn't um, a one-size-fits-all human, so there isn't a one-size-fits-all scoring system either. Mm. How about, for, I was going to say, how about for primary care? Are they useful? There was just there was one slide that was shown today and just one line that, that summed it up for me, and it was use scoring systems and personal experience and intuition, but check both. And I thought that was really telling, and the same applies to, to primary care. Mm. The, the benefit we have in, in primary care, sometimes over what you have, is the opportunity to see our patients again and again. You know, on the whole, you, you have a sort of one-off opportunity. But, but there's nothing to stop me saying, I'm a bit worried about that little boy this morning. I'll see him again this afternoon or tomorrow. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen very much because it's difficult to get one appointment every three weeks as opposed to two in a day. But in an ideal world, if we had more GPs, we could do that. It's, it's looking at the evolution of things, which you often don't have the luxury of having. So the same thing applies to primary care. Last question then. And again, this is from the audience. It's a lovely, nice, straightforward one. Are kids treated equally to adults? <laughs> do they get the same as I'm ooh, some shaking of heads um what, why are you laughing then Ian what, why are kids not treated it so th th this question has come up in various guises over the last few weeks we've been thinking a lot in our hospital about social determinants of health and wider determinants of health and a few weeks ago one of our public health guys said you know when I present about UK data abroad people ask me why we hate children in the UK and it's it's a similar kind of thing you know, when we talk about uh, guidelines for adults, exercise for adults and things, there's a, there's a whole driving thing. Children are often seen as a, as a bit of an afterthought. Um, so I would say, policy level, yes, children are seen as, as, as different and, and sometimes are seen as a political tool and other times seen as a bit of an inconvenience. Um, and I think at hospital level, it's the same. Quite often people will tell me, not all district general hospitals, some are amazing, but... In some district general hospitals, there is a perception that the paediatric services are a little bit of a drain rather than an asset to be to be revered. Um, and obviously in older, hey, we're very lucky that uh, we don't see adults, thank God. I but, do. Uh, <laughs> I see adults. And children are treated very differently to adults, I believe. I think we do our best, but they're there are many challenges that we face on a day-to-day -day basis, but then higher on the political level, like Ian's saying as well. Um, some things, I think, are neglected. I, 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 do, I do think that um, children are disadvantaged um, in this country because of um, policy. I think the, um, the definition of childhood policy was changed by the government, and, and that has actually caught that to the detriment of lots and lots of children across the country particularly in the northwest we have we have really high rates of, of childhood poverty up here um, and um, and I think that's quite disgraceful actually and there's a big uh, there's an even bigger uh, postcode lottery with pediatric care yeah. which is appalling yeah 
And, and also um, single parent families are even more disadvantaged in, in any group. And I think if you are a child in a single parent family, not only are you more likely to be living in poverty, but can you imagine your healthcare outcomes uh, in that situation? So yes, children are treated massively differently to adults and... I, I can understand, I mean, if you're... So I guess, again, your question works at two levels. It, it does the government treat children differently? Absolutely, yes. Do we at individual practitioner level, not us who just see children, but do people who see adults and children treat, different, uh, treat them differently? Well, I've heard that through no real reason other than lack of education and lack of confidence with children, I've heard that that can be the case, both in, in primary care, in EDs, in, in, in the paramedic world. Um, and that's something that we need to address. People have been consistently telling us that, that they would like to get more exposure. And, you, you know, we as, as, as hospitals, as healthcare services, need to be supporting education of, of, of paramedics such that that's not felt to be the case. Children need to be seen in, in the same light as adults in terms of how confident people are. And, and yeah, I, I would echo that. I think when I've spoken to sort of paramedics who've come in and they often said, you know, we get such little teaching and such little training with, with children, it, it's scary. And I th suspect that can also be true for, for, for primary care. You can go through mm. your training and not necessarily do a paediatric job. And, you know, when we see paramedics who bring a child in and they go, look, we're really sorry, but my hands are tied. This child is under one. I've got to bring them to you and we think they're perfectly fine. So yes, we, we, we do treat children differently, I, I think from a, from a clinical perspective. Um, and maybe we are more cautious with children than adults. Yeah, I think in general practice, um, we would try to give children priority in a way. Um, it, it's, it's always um, parent-led. Um, if they want an appointment urgently for a child, we'll try and accommodate that um, you know, for whatever reason. Um, and it must be terrifying for any GP who hasn't had any PEDS training um, to, to be looking after children. I mean, it just, it's incredible to me that that, that, that that can even you know be allowed to happen, but it does. So um, personally, I'm always very cautious when, when treating children and will probably be prone to over-treat them rather than under-treat them as opposed to adults. So it's a difficult one. It, it's often a motive because parents are concerned. Um, they might be angry, distressed, worried. Mm. Um, and and part, of the, part of the problem is, is to reassure them. Um, but again, we have the opportunity to say, well, look, you know, let's, let's see your child again. Uh, and that is a luxury uh, for us that we have that, that perhaps sometimes you don't. I'm petrified if I ever see an adult patient if i ever visit one of our district general hospitals and see an adult patient on the bed somewhere i just put my head down and walk past because it's scary Noble. stuff scary stuff lovely well i think we'll, we'll round that up there uh, i'd like to to thank the entire panel for for giving up their time this afternoon thank you, thank you so much everybody thank you. thank you um thank the audience very much for their questions um and thank the organizers of the conference for, for inviting us to, to come along today so thank you all very very much